are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. Just wanted to make sure we're on before I started speaking. Very pleased you could join us today, and this is our Thursday live question and answer time. If we've never been introduced before, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. Uh, If people know me from anywhere, it might be from an online Bible commentary that I've had on the internet for more than 25 years. Uh, First, uh, with the excellent people at Blue Letter Bible, but then uh, following that on my own website, EnduringWord.com. And a fair number of people use that Bible commentary and find it helpful. And if that's one of you, I'm very pleased to hear that. What we do on a Thursday afternoon is we get together and we talk about uh, the Bible. I answer your questions about the Bible and the Christian life. I certainly don't for a moment claim that I know everything or can answer every question, but I certainly am here to do the very best I can. We got a question, and we start off every week with a lead question, and the lead question this week comes from India. A woman, I believe it's a woman, who says they live in a small village in India. Uh, uh, Her name is Smitha. Again, I I hope I've got that correct, that it is a woman, but Smitha via Facebook asks this, "Um, I have a question about wine and honey. Then she quotes two verses. Mark chapter 14, verse 25, truly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 42, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a piece of honeycomb. So you see the Mark verses of reference to Jesus referring to wine, the fruit of the vine. Uh, the Luke reference, Luke 40, 24, 42, about Jesus eating a piece of honeycomb. So here's the uh, question. From Smitha, I am just a housewife. As far as I know, these two are the things that have no expiry dates. What is the significance? Why did Jesus drink it? Is there anything special about the connection between wine and honey? Well, Smitha, I'm happy to answer your question here. And and just to give it to you, first of all, generally, wine and honey are used in the Bible as descriptions of blessing, of agricultural abundance. You know, when there was plenty of wine and there was plenty of honey in the land of Israel, it was a blessing unto the people. It meant that there was plenty for people to eat and drink and even good things to eat and drink. Now, of course, wine came from grapes and was regarded as a blessing. Wine was a regular part of life for people in the ancient Near East, including Israel. The wine that they drank in the time of the Bible was likely more diluted than most wine today, But someone could still certainly get intoxicated or drunk from overindulgence in wine, even in Bible times. That's why the Bible gives so many warnings against drunkenness and intoxication. Uh, Something I noticed, and this is just an aside, uh, from the kind of Christian culture that I'm in, which Smitha, you, dear sister, being in India, there may not be exact similarity between the Christian culture I was raised in and what you have known. But when I was a younger Christian, uh, there was a lot more avoidance among Christians with alcohol. It it was just seen more as a socially or Christian culturally unacceptable to drink. 
now there's more openness. And again, I think it's important for us to say that that we got to let the Bible be our guide. And I don't believe that the Bible gives any absolute prohibition of drinking alcohol, but it does give an absolute prohibition of drunkenness or intoxication. And so, it's very important for Christians today that if you believe you have the liberty to use alcohol, you must use it moderately. An immoderate use of alcohol is a sin. And it's a serious sin. It's a sin that can have terrible repercussions. It's a sin that can affect your life and the life of other people in terrible, terrible ways. But in moderate use, wine was considered a blessing. And it was a part of meals, especially important meals like Passover. Now, that's the setting of Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Let me put up that verse for us and look at it once again. Um, Mark 14, 25, where it says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, in Mark chapter 14, verse 25, in its context, Jesus told his disciples that he wouldn't celebrate another Passover with his people until all God's people were united in the kingdom of God. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb. I love this verse. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this great feast, this great dinner at the end of the age that Jesus described, he is going to wait until that great ultimate Passover, that great ultimate celebration of the deliverance of the people of God, because that's what the um, that's what Passover was all about. It was a celebration of the deliverance of the people of God. So, that's sort of it for the wine part of it. Now, by the way, Smith, you mentioned that Wine doesn't have an expiry date. Um, It it has to be stored. Again, I'm no wine expert at all, but I I believe wine has to be stored properly to last a long time. I suppose that if it is, then it can. You know, every once in a while you hear about somebody opening a bottle of 400-year-old wine or whatever. But I, I don't know if they had the technology to store things that well in the biblical world. So I don't think they thought of a of wine as something that lasted forever. Now, you also asked about honey. And Luke chapter 24 describes how Jesus ate some honeycomb and some fish with his disciples after his resurrection. Let's take a look at that verse. Luke chapter 24, verses 42 and 43, where we read, so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Now, obviously, what Jesus is eating here is honey made by bees coming from a honeycomb. But you just need to know that that wasn't the normal or the most common form of honey used in the Old Testament times. In the biblical world, the honey described in the Bible usually came from dates, concentrated date syrup, not normally from bees. Now, of course, they knew about honey from bees and they enjoyed it when they could. In Judges chapter 14, Samson finds honey from bees and a honeycomb in the carcass of a lion. For Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan, the son of David, finds a honeycomb on the ground and he ate some of the honey. You just look up the many references to honeycomb in the Bible and you can find that. 
And Jesus here in Luke chapter 24 was obviously eating honey from bees. He wasn't eating date syrup. Um, But honey was not to be added to the sacrifices that Israel made. You'll find that in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 11, because that was a common pagan practice in their sacrifices. But throughout the Old Testament, you'll find this phrase, milk and honey, usually referring to the land of Canaan, a land of milk and honey, that describes agricultural blessing and abundance where there's plenty of good things to eat. Now, your question, Smith, uh, uh, referring especially to Luke chapter 24, verses 42 and 43, what does it mean that Jesus ate honeycomb and fish in the presence of his disciples? Well, it, it means fundamentally that he was a real flesh and blood person in his resurrection body. He wasn't some kind of phantom or ghost. And that's a very important thing to say. Jesus wasn't raised as a immaterial spirit. He was raised in a real resurrection body. It also shows us that whether food is necessary in the resurrection or whether it's not necessarily, it's compatible with those who are in the resurrection. Presumably, uh, food and eating is going to be one of the blessings of the resurrection life. And aren't we happy for that? But in several of his resurrection appearances, Jesus ate with his disciples or he ate in the presence of his disciples. And again, I think that the fundamental meaning of that is twofold. Number one, to show the reality of his resurrection body, that he was not raised as a ghost or a spirit, but he was raised in a real body. But number two, eating also had the connotation of genuine fellowship in the ancient world. You, you connected with people, you developed close connections with them, friendships over meals. And that was a very important part of it. Jesus wanted to connect with his disciples, the risen Jesus did in meals. Now, it's important that we don't try to give such things greater meaning than the plain meaning, as if there was some great spiritual significance that Jesus ate honey in the presence of his disciples. And like it's our job to figure out that significance. Listen, that's a danger that we need to avoid. And let me give you an example of this danger. Um, The danger of looking for great symbolic or allegorical meaning in every detail of the Bible. In John chapter 21, verse 11, it describes how after the resurrection, Jesus met his disciples in Galilee and at his direction, they cast their fishing net into a certain place in the water and they caught 153 fish. Let me show you that verse. John 21, 11. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now, through the centuries, there's been a lot of attempts to explain why the number was 153 fish. Some interpreters, such as Augustine, that great theologian of the early church, they thought, well, 153 is the sum of the numbers between 1 and 17. Apparently it is. And this catch of fish points towards the number 17, which is thought to be the number of the commandments, which is 10, added to the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. So that's what Augustine and others taught. Some people noted that 153 is the added numerical value of the Greek words Peter and fish. In both Greek and Hebrew, letters had numerical values. And if you add up the value of the words Peter and fish, you get 153 in Greek. 
Some people note that in Hebrew, the characters Simon Ionia, Simon son of Jonah, that's equivalent to 118 plus 35 or 153. Some ancient writers such as Jerome believed that there were 153 different types of fish in the world. And so this catch represents a full harvest of the entire world. And then there were others such as Cyril of Alexandria who thought that 100 stood for the Gentiles, 50 stood for Israel, and three stood for the Trinity. Now friends, let me tell you something. Do you want to know why there was 153? Why that number's noted there in John 21, 11? I'll tell you why. It's because that's how many fish there were in the net. You, you can make endless allegorical interpretations that just are sort of not important at all. Now, if anything, I will tell you, there is some significance to that number 153, and it's not found in the number. It just shows us that Peter and John were real fishermen who never make a catch without counting it. And they always remember a big catch. If you note it there in uh, 2111, it says that not only were there 153, but they were full of large fish. That's just the kind of detail that fishermen would want to remember. There's no need to look for a deeper meaning. And there's some potential danger in looking for deeper meanings, especially if the attitude is that the so-called deeper meaning is the real meaning or the higher meaning. So, Smitha, I hope that helps you. And I'm going to get to one more quick question from Smitha. Uh, one of our folks told us that she made a very strong appeal for this. Smitha asked this as well. I'm from a small village in India. I was taught since young to close my eyes and pray. Does the Bible say so? Jesus raised his eyes to the heavens and prayed. David too. Is it wrong to close eyes and looking down to pray towards darkness? Instead, why don't we look up to the skies and pray? I always feel stressed and sad when I look down and pray, but I feel joy when I go to the Terrence and look up and pray. All right, Smith, let me just give you a quick answer to this question. The practice of closing one's eyes and bowing one's head in prayer is a cultural custom or tradition. It's not a biblical command. I don't know exactly when it started, but certainly in the Western world, this is sort of the thing. You, you know, if you're going to pray, you fold your hands, you close your eyes, you bow your head, and that's how you pray. Now, I suppose there's some value in that. I like the idea of closing your hands because if nothing else, it gets your phone out of your hands just for a couple of seconds. So uh, whatever, that's fine. Closing your eyes, that's the idea of shutting out distractions, putting your focus on God. Okay, great. But that's not commanded by the Bible. Now, it's true, Smith, that you mentioned the practice in Bible times was to look to heaven and to raise one's hands in prayer, something like that. And, and so that past posture is not commanded in the Bible, but of course it's fine. So this dear sister in India has the freedom in Christ to pray with eyes open and face turned to heaven. There is absolutely no command saying otherwise. Smith, you can feel free to pray to the Lord that way. Now, let me give you one caution though. We can't make how we feel during prayer as the first measure telling us how we should pray. Now, I think it's great that you feel joy when you go to your terrace and look up and pray. That's great. But how we feel in prayer and worship isn't more important than what the Bible says. But since the Bible does not command prayer with a bowed head and closed eyes, and even patterns prayer with eyes open and the face lifted to heaven, 
then it's great that you happen to feel joy praying that way. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Smitha. God bless you. I'm so glad that you could join us from India. And in just a moment, I'll get onto our questions in the live chat, but I do mean that in just a moment because I need to give a very special announcement. Okay, today is Thursday. It's a 12 noon West Coast time in the United States. I don't know what time it is for you in your time zone. But I want you to know that this coming Monday, I guess that's March 29th at 12 noon again, West Coast time. So the same time that this Q&A usually starts. We're going to premiere an important video. At least it's important to us. The video is simply Mount Sinai in Arabia. You can find it either by a link on this YouTube channel or by just going to EnduringWord.com slash Sinai. That link will tell, take you there. And Mount Sinai in Arabia is a, a video produced from a recent trip that myself and three dear friends, men who are on the board here of Enduring Word, uh, we went together to Saudi Arabia to check out the viability of the claims that Mount Sinai may actually be on the Arabian Peninsula and not on what is called the Sinai Peninsula. And so we went to the place called Jabal Makal, and uh, we saw this, what is claimed to be Mount Sinai in Arabia. Uh, we four friends went on that trip. It was a tremendous time. And uh, one of us, uh, Lance Ralston, uh, he put a lot of time into making this amazing video. I think it is amazing. We are going to premiere it uh, this coming Monday, March, uh, March, May 29th at 12 noon Pacific time, the time we usually start our Q&A. And what we mean as a premiere is I, uh, Lance, Miles, Chuck, all the four guys on the trip will be there on the live chat to interact with you while we show that. So you can see it, of course, anytime after that. But if you want to get involved in just seeing the... Um, the, the time that we have together here and, and what we experience together in live chat, interacting with us, you are very, very free to join us then. All right, that's it for our announcements. I think I'm going to announce one more time the Mount Sinai in Arabia thing before we leave. But I do just want to say now, let's get on into our questions from the live chat. Um, looks like our stream is healthy and I'm very happy with that. Okay, here we go. Um, Whosoever asks this question. Uh, hello, uh, Pastor Guzik. Uh, I'm preparing a small teaching on revival. My question is, what do you think would be some good topics to touch on on the subject of revival and how should one prepare? Thank you. Well, whosoever, um, I thoroughly recommend the resources of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. So, for revival resources, I recommend people go to jedwinor.com, and there you'll find an impressive collection of audio and video resources. On our own YouTube channel, we have two playlists dedicated to Dr. J. Edwin Orr. But his work is very biblical and very scholarly. You see, whosoever, whenever you're talking about the phenomenon of revival or spiritual awakening, I think you have to talk about it in two contexts. You have uh, what the Bible says about it, which of course is very important and most important. But then you also have the understanding of, of what God has done in history in these movements of revival and spiritual awakening. So I strongly recommend uh, the resources of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr, jedwinorr.com, or the two playlists on our own YouTube channel. 
You can also go to EnduringWord.com and go to the audio section under media, and you'll find some messages on revival and the deeper life. Uh, Those are messages, teachings by me, and I think those might be helpful for you. Look, uh, I have taught Bible college classes on uh, the theology of revival and spiritual awakening, and I, I would love to maybe do one of those for our YouTube channel. Friends, I got to tell you, there's a huge list of things that I want to do, that I need to do, that I want to do, but um, it just has to wait. It just takes time. But uh, before too long, I hope to have up a video class on the theology and the practice or what, what the history, I say, theology and history of revival and spiritual awakening. So I hope that's helpful for there, whosoever. Uh, Charlene from our TWR360 audience. Hey, by the way, that's a great excuse to just let me say welcome to our TWR360 audience. TWR stands for Trans World Radio, and TWR360 is their online presence, uh, that great ministry that's been doing remarkable work, reaching the world with the gospel and with the word of God uh, for decades through shortwave radio and now through their online presence with TWR360. Here's something from Charlene. Uh, She asks, uh, Hi, Pastor Guzik. uh, How do you reconcile Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, seeming to say that eating meat sacrificed to idols in itself isn't really bad, only in how it might influence someone with a weak conscience? In Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus holds the same thing, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, against the Christians in Pergamos. Thank you. Okay, and the relevant passage from Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 goes like this, where he says, um, these things I have against you because you have there those who have hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Uh, Charlene, I, I would say it in two ways. First of all, Paul would acknowledge that there was a sinful and idolatrous way for a person to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And that was always wrong. It was always wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols in a sinful and idolatrous way. And, and I think what we would say is the text here in Revelation is referring simply to that way. So that, that's what's in my, the, the sinful eating of meat sacrificed to idols. But there's something else I want you to see here. Notice how in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, there is the link between eating things sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Oftentimes, the two went together at the pagan temples in the ancient world. So there's that aspect as well as it. So... Um, clearly, what's being condemned here in Revelation is not necessarily every eating of meat that was sacrificed to an idol, but the clearly sinful aspect of it that Paul himself noted. That's how I would explain that, Charlene, and I hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Spirit Warrior, who asks, I was listening to your talk on Psalm 91, and you said that we should not talk or pray to angels and not command or request them to do anything directly. And you agree 110%. Are we wrong to ask God to send ministry, healing, warring angels to help people we are interceding for? We're told in Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits 
at the end of the day, God knows what everyone needs and will send angels when necessary. Are we wrong to ask God to send angels to help those in serious need? To clarify, always through from God, not because we sent them. Well, Spirit Warrior, in the way that you phrase and present that, I would say, yes, that's permitted. You rightly point out that in Hebrews, the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister on the behalf of those who will inherit salvation. And if someone is a man or a woman who knows that they will inherit salvation, they can come to God on the basis of that promise and say, Lord, you said that, that these angels were ministering spirits sent forth to help me. Lord, would you send forth angels to help me in this situation? Now, I like the way that you phrase it, though. When we make such a request like that, what we're really asking for is help. Now, look, please, believer, listen to me. Do you always know the way that you need help? Do, do you always know whether the help you need would better come to you from an angel, from God directly, from a person that God would inspire, or from some unknown source altogether? How, how can you know for sure? And so, to act like you always know best and to demand that God would send forth an angel instead of helping you in some other way, I think that's a little bit cheeky in prayer. So, I don't see anything wrong with a believer praying something like this, Lord, I need your help. You say that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to, to bring salvation on our behalf. Lord, send forth such angels or any other way to help me. I find nothing wrong with a prayer like that. But I do find a problem, of course, in any kind of proud prayer that would sort of bossily command God, and I mean in a bossy manner, Lord, do this, do that, um, and help me just the way that I tell you you need to help me. So I hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Spirit Warrior. Uh, Banjo asks the question, uh, blessings to Pastor David. What role did angelic beings play in the delivery of the law of Moses? Uh, law to Moses. Uh, Banjo, it was a rabbinic tradition that angels were used in delivering the Ten Commandments to Moses. And if I'm remembering right, it's in Hebrews where the writer of the Hebrews picks up on that tradition and says that that's how it happened that the law came to Moses through the hand of angels. And so, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, and, and again, we're not told exactly how this happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, angels delivered the tablets of the Ten Commandments to Moses. And by the way, wh where did that happen? That happened on Mount Sinai, and uh, that gives me a chance to plug this, the video Mount Sinai in Arabia, that we're going to premiere on our YouTube channel this coming Monday, May 29th at 12 noon West Coast time in the United States, whatever time zone that is for you. And, and what the premiere means is uh, myself and three friends of mine, uh, those of us who make up the board of Enduring Word, we went together to investigate this site. And this is a great video made up by Pastor Lance Ralston on our board who... Uh, just put together this great footage and documentary and explanation of the case for Mount Sinai being in Arabia instead of Mount Sinai. So I hope you can join us and recommend other people to join us because I think it's going to be a wonderful time to interact with people on the live chat while we do that. So 
again, I would just put it to you this way, um, Banjo. There's nothing in the Old Testament directly that says that the law came to Moses through angels, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, perhaps, of the Ten Commandments, but um, the writer of Hebrews seems to reinforce it. He just does. He says that it was mediated through the hands of angels. So, I hope that's helpful for you there. Margaret asks, what does it mean to deny yourself? Margaret, that's a tremendous question. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to be able to say no to your fleshly desires and wants. There's something in my body that wants to run my life, that wants to dictate everything. Now, listen, we, as Christians, we don't hate our body. No, God gave us these bodies as a gift. God has a glorious destiny for these bodies. So we're not anti-body, but we don't want the desires of our body to run our life. We, we live after a higher level. You, know, you, you could say that's how it is for the animal kingdom. The desires of their bodies run their life. Uh, 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 they live for nothing more than to eat, to drink, to sleep, and to reproduce. And you know some people like that, don't you? Well, we're to live as a higher level. Again, we're not, we don't hate the body. We're not against the body. We don't despise the body, but we just put it in its proper place. Now, this has to do with more than just bodily things, the, the things of, of our flesh. It also has to do with the aspirations of our flesh. It, it means to deny yourself means to not put yourself in first place, but to put God in first place. It's a little bit cliche, but sometimes people use that formulation. You know, God first, others second, me last or third. And and really, that's how it should be. To assert myself, to demand that I be number one. That's almost the opposite of denying myself. So, Margaret, I think this is something that Christians need to do. I, I think that this is something that is almost entirely lost upon Christians today. The culture around us tells us that sort of the key to being a healthy, well-adjusted person is to indulge everything of the body. The the, the more you indulge your bodily desires and wishes, well, that's how to be fully human. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It means to live that life where God is the highest priority. His word is greater than our word and wisdom. And say, Lord, no, I deny myself and I exalt you. That's some of what it means, Margaret, to deny ourselves. Next question comes from Susan. Why was the crucifixion the method of Jesus' death? I know the Old Testament spoke of it, but why not stoning? Okay, Susan, well, a few reasons for that. Um, number one, it's because the if the Jewish people would have executed Jesus, uh, it's likely they would have done by stoning. Outside of Nazareth, people in his own home village tried to execute him by stoning. And of course, we know that the first martyr of the early church, Stephen, was killed by stoning. So if the Jewish people would have executed Jesus, perhaps it would have been by stoning, or probably, but 
the Jewish people didn't execute Jesus. The Romans did. And that was done by crucifixion, which was not only a Roman form of execution, but it was the worst Roman form of execution. Uh, many people among the Romans were uh, executed by beheading. You'd cut your head off with a sword. That's how Paul was martyred. But crucifixion was reserved for slaves and the worst criminals of the lowest classes. So really, it's sort of the Roman character. Pontius Pilate is the one who commanded the death of Jesus. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Uh, and that's why it was that instead of stoning. But then also, of course, to fulfill um, the prophecies. Now, you say that the Old Testament speaks, but it's interesting, the Old Testament speaks of crucifixion prophetically. From my understanding, the Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it and used it as a way to customarily execute slaves and the lowest classes. I hope that's helpful for you there. Really, Susan, the distinction is between a Jewish execution and a Roman one. Barry asks this question. What is your understanding of rewards in the kingdom? First uh, Corinthians 3.14. Will believers have different rewards based on their good works? What will these rewards look like? First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 says this. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. Well, Barry, I believe very much in the concept of reward and that not all believers will receive the same reward. That seems to be something very plainly taught in the Bible. Um, so, yes, believers will have different rewards based on their faithfulness to the Lord, based on their good works, based on just what they did with what God gave to them. That's number one. But you also ask, what would these rewards look like? Barry, I, I don't exactly know. You know, pe people talk about receiving crowns in heaven and having jewels <clears throat> in their crowns and, you know, as if there's going to be some Christians in heaven that have these huge, elaborate, jewel-encrusted crowns, and, and maybe somebody else will have like a little paper crown that you get at a hamburger chain. Uh, look, I, I don't know. I can't say. that. That's not for me to say exactly what crowns will be or anything like this, but I, I like this explanation. Barry, I can't say this is from the Bible. This is sort of a way to explain this idea. So, I'll, I'll give it to you, and you can, you can take it for what it's worth in your own eyes. So, he, here's one way to understand this. It's that what... Uh, reward in heaven is, it's receiving a greater capability to enjoy God. And so, um, you know, this is a, is a pretty big cup right here. Uh, given to me my friends in Blue Letter Bible. That's a pretty big cup. And I suppose somewhere else I could find a smaller cup around here. But a, a big cup and a smaller cup have different capacities. It could be that reward in heaven is receiving a bigger cup, so to speak, a bigger capacity to enjoy and receive God. And in heaven, everybody's cup will be full, but some people have bigger cups than others. So that's a suggestion. The Bible doesn't really say that, but it's it's one idea that people have come up with. Let me go on to the next question from Matt. Uh, Matt asks, I heard that you'll come to Sweden. When will you be in Sweden, Sweden, and will you give a sermon? Matt, yes, I'm coming to Sweden. Uh, it will be at the end of July, the beginning of August, and I will be there for the Calvary Chapel Scandinavia Conference. 
This is where different churches and home fellowships scattered across Scandinavia from the Calvary Chapel sort of family of churches get together and we check it out. We have a beautiful time. We've been getting together for decades uh, every summer. And uh, my wife, Inga Lil, and I will be joining them. And we're really looking forward to this time. Uh, as for the place, it's in the middle of Sweden. I can't remember the name of the exact place. Uh, look up the information on uh, calvarychapel.dk, of course, for Denmark, calvarychapel.dk, and that'll give you information as to where it is and how you can register. And again, my wife and I look forward to joining uh, dear, dear brothers and sisters there who uh, get together. I mean, we, we get together almost every year together. You see the same group of people, and then new people, of course, are always welcome. But what wonderful friendship and fellowship we've developed over the years. So, Matt, that's what we're going to be gathering together for. End of July, beginning of August. I can't remember the exact dates. Uh, Ronan asks, Can you explain Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, being a prophecy about the Messiah being born of a virgin, while misquoting Isaiah 7, 14, when his prophecy is actually about the destruction of Israel and Aram? Okay, well, Ronan, let me just stop you right there. I don't think that this is a misquoting. I think it's a greater application. If you were to take a look at my commentary on Isaiah chapter 7, I think I explain it pretty well there. Uh, again, EnduringWord.com, find the commentary section, go to Isaiah, go to chapter 7, you can find it there. But really what's happening is this is a, a prophecy with a double fulfillment. Yes, the prophecy in one sense said that God will deliver Judah and wipe out um, Aram, this threatening nation, and he'll do it before a child grows to a certain age. So, he'll do it within a few years. But it was also, obviously, as well, a prophecy of the Messiah to come from the way that it is used in the New Testament. And, and if you ask him about being a, you know, a misquoting, I don't think it's misquoting. I, I think it's just simply inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit moved Matthew, and other New Testament interpreters to understand the scriptures in these ways. So, that's simply the way that I would explain it. Uh, it's a prophecy with a double fulfillment. Yes, it had application to Isaiah's own day. You can see it right there. But also, it looks beyond Isaiah's day to a greater and more perfect fulfillment in the days of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, Ronan, again, I would just recommend you check out my commentary on Isaiah chapter 7 and I think I explain it in much greater detail there. Thank you for that, Ronan. Uh, Banjo asks, Hello, Pastor Guzik. Blessings to you and to your family. Could you clarify uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6? I'm mixed up on the ideas of salvation versus abiding. It seems like I can be saved, but not always abiding. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin, Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Okay, Banjo, yes, I think 1 John does make a distinction between salvation with God and fellowship with God. And it's, person, it's possible for a person to be saved, but at least in an immediate sense, at the moment, they're not really walking in fellowship with God. There, there's some area of disobedience or distance. 
Now, of course, that doesn't put them in the category of an unbeliever. It's not as if a person were to unexpectedly die at such a moment, well, they'd go to hell. No, not at all. They're, they're a believer, but they're a believer living in at least some degree of um, disfellowship with God through disobedience, through unbelief, whatever it would be. And, and that's a distinction that's made several times throughout that letter of First John. But I do need to tell you something about this in First John chapter 3, verse 16, verse 16, when he says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He's using a verb tense there in the grammar of the original language, the, the uh, Koine Greek, that says, whoever continually practices sin. In other words, this is somebody who lives in habitual sin and really has no heart or no desire for that to change. That's evidence of someone who has never really had their life changed by Jesus Christ. So, Banjo, you're right. That, that distinction between um, being saved and having fellowship in the moment with God, uh, that's, that's a distinction that needs to be made throughout understanding 1 John. Let me go on to the next question from Jared. Uh, Pastor Guzik, was Naomi truly humble and honest in simply calling herself bitter? How do we know that she was repentant? I've been taught conflicting things on this point. Well, Jared's bringing up the case of Naomi in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, who together with her husband Elimelech went from the promised land in a time of famine and went to the people of Moab uh, and then they came back and disaster afflicted that family while they were in Moab. Elimelech died and their two sons died. So it was just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law on their way back to return to Israel, but only Ruth, that one daughter actually came. The other one, Oprah, stayed back. I think that was her name, uh, stayed back in Moab. And so Jared's kind of asking on the idea here, um, do we know if Naomi was truly humble and honest? Well, uh, Jared, first of all, I would say she was definitely humble. She didn't come back arrogantly. She came back in humiliation. So I, I think the text itself just points out that she was humble. But as far as her being um, uh, repentant, I, I would say we know she was repentant because she came back. If she wouldn't have been repentant, she would have stayed right there in Moab. But the reality of her repentance was demonstrated by what she did. Listen, let's face it. We as believers can oftentimes talk a good game about repentance. But ultimately, re repentance isn't shown in what we say, but it's shown in what we do. And Naomi showed repentance because of the fact she went back to Bethlehem, to her ancestral lands. So I I'm more of the case of seeing an appropriate humility and honesty and repentance in uh, Naomi coming back and saying, call me bitter, call me Mara, because uh, my sin has created a lot of bitterness in my life. That's just kind of how I see it. That's the emphasis I would put on it. And again, uh, both from her obviously humble disposition as she comes back to Bethlehem, you can just read it there in the text in Ruth chapter one, but then also uh, very evidently how she came back and she actually did go back instead of staying in Moab. All right, next question comes from Now I Know, who asks, 
Is it the case that God will see future wrongdoings of someone at the present time and start punishing them already? For example, could David's sufferings at the hands of King Saul be a punishment for his future sin? Okay, uh, now I know, I'll just put it to you this way. I, first of all, I, I can't think of anything in the Bible that suggests that God punishes people ahead of their sin, knowing that they would commit it. I don't see anything in the Bible that suggests that, number one. And number two, it would seem to go against the um, fundamental truthfulness or honesty of God in this. Um, it doesn't seem to be a, a honest question or an honest thing for God to do. Uh, it goes against our notions of justice to punish somebody before they commit the crime. So because I don't see anything in the Bible that says that God does do that, uh, I would say no, that isn't uh, the case. All right, warming up for our big lightning round. Taking a drink, soothing myself. Going back to remind you here that uh, this Monday, May 29th at noon, we're going to premiere the Mount Sinai in Arabia video. And what that means that it's going to be a premiere is simply this, uh, that it will... We're going to be on live chat. The the four guys, those four friends, myself, Lance Ralston, Miles Benedictus, Chuck Musselwhite, you know these fellas because sometimes they host the Q&A for me when I can't make it. Uh, we're all going to be there on the live chat, commenting, answering your questions, just enjoying the premiere of the video with you. Hope you can join us and get others to do as well. Okay, whoo, lightning round. Uh, I've got a brutal mod moderator here who just not giving me a moment of rest. Man. Cracking the whip on me. Okay, Marilyn. Hello, Pastor Guzik. Will the new heaven stop in midair or will it come down to the new earth? Uh, Marilyn, it's a little bit unclear. Uh, the kind of picture we have of the new Jerusalem there, as it's described in the book of Revelation, is almost that it's suspended between heaven and earth. Um, but it's a little difficult to say. So I'm just going to be unclear. Uh, it seems like Everything at the end of Book of Revelation is heaven where God dwells. So maybe the distinction, the line between heaven and earth is almost erased at that point. And, and as a way of God showing his lordship over everything, heaven comes down to earth and it all becomes part of the same thing. That's that's sort of the imagery that, that I would see and, and talk about there. Thank you for that, Marilyn. Dan asks, uh, it's graduation season. Do you have any scripture that stands out as advice for these people? I'm looking at Proverbs chapter 4 at the moment. Dan, don't neglect the passages in Ecclesiastes that speak to young people, especially in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. Look at those chapters. Uh, read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, but especially 11 and 12, where he speaks to the importance of honoring God in your youth. Look at those. Ecclesiastes 12. I think that's a great passage for graduates. Uh, Matt asks this question, after the rapture of the church, what's going to happen in heaven with the Lord and the bride? Judgment or celebration? Uh, Matt, I don't think it's going to be judgment. Um, no, for sure it's not going to be judgment. Uh, in heaven, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, is not judged. 
All judgment upon the people of God was poured out upon God the Son. There's no more judgment for the people of God to face. And so, um, no, it's going to be celebration. It's going to be eternity in resurrected glory with Jesus Christ. That's what God's people have to look forward to. Uh, Next question from Joshua, who asks, uh, Why does Jesus in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 keep repeating, I know thy works? Is not salvation by grace through faith? Yes, Joshua. But salvation, in other words, um, passing from, so to speak, passing from hell to heaven, that's not the only relevant issue in the Christian life. God has created his people for good works. And so God's work in the believer is so much more than giving them just a ticket to heaven and an escape from hell. It's building in them things and doing in them and through them good works. God from all eternity has appointed, had predetermined good works that his people should fulfill. And so Jesus cares very much about the conduct of our lives. Thank you for that, Joshua. Yeah, it goes back. So it's an important thing. It's a heavy thing. It should be a uh, a meaningful thing for the believer to be able to say, uh, hey, God sees my works and I'm going to live in light of that. Dunal Banan, Shugotre, hello from Sweden. Will the mark of the beast come when the Antichrist makes his peace treaty with Israel or when he declares himself to be uh, God in Jerusalem's temple? Tunal Banan, Shugotre, it could go either way. <clears throat> it doesn't really say one way or the other. Uh, we're not given a specific time marker as for when the mark of the beast comes, just that it simply will be there in that period, uh, this last seven-year period, before the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Next question comes from Linda, who asks, I'm confused about the times I read in the Bible where God agrees to let Satan do certain things to us. I wish you could help me understand this. Linda, There is a sense in which Satan only ultimately serves the purposes of God. God has a purpose for allowing certain kinds of affliction in the lives of his people. And if God has appointed to allow some certain type of affliction in the lives of his people, then it's not crazy at all to see how God would allow Satan to do a particular thing, a particular um, thing unto his people. So really, that's that's how I would explain it there, Linda. God is ultimately using Satan to accomplish his purposes. Linda, let me give you the ultimate example of that. And that's what uh, Satan did through Judas in betraying Jesus and sending him to the cross. Look, that was Satan's work. The the Bible says, as a matter of fact, that Satan entered Judas to do this work. But at the same time, we know that uh, God used it for his glorious ultimate purpose. And uh, in the end, Satan was just sort of a tool that God used in his hand to accomplish his purpose. God may do a similar thing in the lives of his people in and through the work of what he allows Satan to do. Hope that's helpful for you there, Linda. Dan asks this question. I've seen brothers and sisters guilt or shame others for going to sleep early to get up early and study God's word. 
I've said something to them, but they do not agree. Any advice? Well, listen, Dan, there's nothing to shame somebody. The idea is saying, I'm going to go to bed early so that I can get up early and study God's word and spend time with him. There is nothing wrong and everything right with that. And, And if there's a believer who has to endure a little bit of mockery of that, then praise the Lord, that's um, enduring suffering in some measure for righteousness sake, even if it comes from other brothers and sisters. So um, I, my advice to a believer who's being mocked like that, being criticized, guilted or shamed because they like to go to bed early and that say, well, you know what? Uh, tomorrow morning when I'm spending time with God, I'm just going to talk to God about it and not worry about it because uh, there's everything right with saying, I'm going to structure my life around spending more time with the Lord and giving him more honor and glory in my life. Hope that's helpful for you there, Dan. Um, Civi TPS, I don't know. Why does Paul favor singleness in 1 Corinthians, but admonishes young widows to remarry in his letter to Timothy? Well, uh, SVYTPS, let me just say that Paul recommended singleness for those who could handle it, so to speak. I'm using a little bit of my paraphrasing there. But for those whom it was right, uh, Paul recognized that generally most people will be married. So Paul wasn't trying to get people who were called to married life to become single. What Paul was doing in those uh words regarding singleness was trying to get people who were called to be single to try to let them know that it was all right for them to receive and to walk in that calling. There's a huge difference between trying to convince someone who's called to married life, which most believers are, and instead saying, no, uh, if you're called to married life, yes, take it. And there were women who were widows who were called to married life. But I, I would also say this, SVYTPS, that there was a very practical reason for that. For widows in the ancient world were proverbial for their poverty because a childless widow had no one to support her. Normally, I mean, look, the, the church took care of each other the best they could, but normally a childless widow had no one to, to support them. So there was a practical reason for that, but then also just a recognition that Um, Just because your husband died doesn't mean you're no longer called to married life. And uh, again, Paul's words on singleness were never intended to get people who were called to be married to adopt singleness. That wasn't the idea at all. Uh, Next question from Brianna, who says, Should believers create alternative events during Halloween, like harvest events or Hallelujah Nights? Aren't we supposed to be set apart? Brianna, yes. But, but listen, Jesus didn't specifically say, uh, be set apart by doing something different or be set apart by ignoring it altogether. I, I think both ways can be expressions of being set apart. And so what I would say to each individual church leadership, uh, because normally it would be a church that you're talking about, Brianna, that would do this, is they should just earnestly seek the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want us to do? And I would respect a church that said, uh, we believe that us being set apart means that we shouldn't have any kind of harvest festival or any kind of Halloween alternative. I I totally respect a church that does that. Or I respect a church saying, no, uh, 
we're going to be set apart. And the way we're going to be set apart is by doing this, but doing it in a completely different way and doing it in a way that honors God. So really, that, that's the issue there, Brianna. I think just churches need to hear from the Holy Spirit. Um, I would be critical of churches that would do such things without asking the questions that you're asking. They shouldn't do things just because they've done it before, because other churches do it before, or because it's popular, or people are clamoring for it. The church leadership should genuinely seek the Lord about it, and then uh, confidently go forward in the liberty that God has given them. Hope that's helpful for you there, Brianna. Julie asks a uh, question. Please explain Revelation chapter 6, verse 6. See thou not hurt the oil and the wine. Okay, uh, Julie, in those passages, um, oil and wine are emblematic of luxuries. Just things that were great to have, that, that, that made life better, more than sustenance, just what people would use to make life better. And in that context, it says that um, th- there will even be uh, luxuries that people enjoy, even in the midst of that kind of judgment that's going forth. Uh, Because that passage in Revelation that you're referring to is really a passage that has a greater context of judgment coming upon it. Um, And do not harm the oil and wine. You're talking about extremely high prices for the wheat and the barley. But again, other people still be able to enjoy luxuries, which is how it is in this world. Even when times are bad, uh, wealthy people have a way of being able to get by just fine. Uh, And again, that's how it is in our fallen world. Um, and then uh, last couple questions here from Jeff, who asks, uh, David asked God to create him a new heart. If God does create in us a new heart, why do you think we still have a fleshly heart that has a propensity to sin? Well, Jeff, uh, there can be conflicting words used to describe different aspects of the inner nature, of the inner man. The, the way I would describe it is that the believer has a new heart, but there's still a fleshly nature that needs to be dealt with. You say, well, is the heart the fleshly nature? Is the fleshly nature the heart? Where are they dead? Look, these things can be difficult to define with precision, but just to recognize there is an aspect of my being as a believer that is definitely made new by Jesus Christ, and there's another aspect of my being that still has to grow in God's grace and grow in sanctification. And uh, that's just recognizing the play between them both. Sometimes the Bible uses, well, let me put it this way. I'll put it in the negative. The Bible does not always use the same terminology in the same context for all these things. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Joshua asks, Pastor, will there be ranks in heaven? Many believe that everyone will be the same rank in heaven. Well, Joshua, there will be different rewards in heaven. And I believe that those different rewards will set people in somewhat different levels. Uh, when Jesus talked about rewards and used those parables, he talked about people who were given authority over more or less things. So I think there will be some kind of rank in heaven. I, I can't tell exactly what it is. And of course, it won't be oppressive. It won't be bad. But, but, but in our modern world, we're often tempted to think that any kind of hierarchy is automatically sinful and irrelevant, uh, sinful and, and um, oppressive. And I don't think that's how God sees it all. Um, Not fundamentally. Obviously, there's a huge fallen aspect to hierarchy, of course. But to say that any kind of hierarchy or or arrangement by rank is automatically sinful and oppressive, 
Uh, I don't think that's what the Bible says. And for our last question from Alan. Hey, Alan. Thanks for the question. Why do you prefer Calvary Chapel movement church life instead of others? What are the distinctives that make you choose it? Well, Alan, look, let me just be very transparent with everybody here. I would have to admit that some of my preference for Calvary Chapel church life is because that's where I came to Christ. That's where I was discipled. That's where I grew up. And and I'd be lying if I'd say that that didn't have some significant effect on me. Maybe my life would be very different if I would have grown up in a Baptist circle or a Presbyterian circle or some other kind of church growth. But I I don't think there's any denying that the fact that I was uh, brought to faith in Christ at Calvary Chapel Riverside, that the first Protestant preacher I ever heard was a man named Greg Laurie. And um, so that's had a huge impact on me. And I praise God for that impact because I believe it's been good. But look, what I love about the Calvary Chapel movement is not that it's perfect. Of course not. It's a collection of fallen individuals trying to serve God the best they can. But what I love, I love the primacy on God's word and the expositional teaching of God's word. I love the emphasis on the idea that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, yet they should not be, the exercise of the gifts should not be made the center of congregational life. Instead of the worship and the word should be made the center of congregational life and gathering. I appreciate the doctrinal clear-headedness of it. And if I can say, I appreciate in the Calvary Chapel movement, I haven't had many... I, it's doctrinal faithfulness, understanding in, in words where the, the church in so many ways is going off a pro-affirming homosexuality, pro-affirming the trans world, pro-affirming um, what I consider to be unbiblical practices such as women pastors and uh, authoritative teaching in churches and such, congregations. I appreciate biblical faithfulness, but I also appreciate something about uh, Calvary Chapel is that we're I mean, somewhat, we're low church. We're working class. We're not trying to put on airs about how smart we are, how great we are, or at least we shouldn't be. So those are some of the things, Alan, that I would express. Hey, folks, it's one o'clock. Thank you for joining me for this hour. Before I leave, I just want to come back one more time and say, uh, join us Monday May 29th at 12 noon Pacific time for our showing, our premiere of uh, Mount Sinai in Arabia, where we're going to talk about the viability of the uh, Jabal Makal in uh, Arabia for being the site of Mount Sinai. And uh, the four guys, myself and three others who went on trip, we're going to be there on the live chat interacting with you. Hope you can join us for that. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for coming. And... uh, Hope to see you again next week and beyond. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.